This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. I, I wanted to do a bit of an introduction here because this is more about, more than introducing uh, Philip this morning. But there are, the best way I can say it is there are advantages and challenges. I'd rather say challenges as opposed to disadvantages, but maybe that's a euphemism. There are advantages and challenges in being an interdenominational congregation or local church. Uh, We talk about the advantages quite often, obviously, because it's the path that we've chosen. It's certainly not the only path, and we have great respect and appreciation for denominations. It's funny watching non-denominational groups coalesce and ultimately create denominations. There's a lot good about denominations, obviously. Sometimes you find yourself in a place that you are where we are. Um, one of the challenges of being interdenominational is uh, the matter of identity. And when I say identity, I, I mean uh, questions like, who are we? Where do we come from as a congregation? Where in the, you know, that vast taxonomy of the church, you know, all the breakdowns, that tree of the church, where do we fit into that? Um, Where do we come from? Where are we going? Here's a big one for folk like us from evangelical backgrounds. What do we believe? How do we operate in terms of polity, in terms of mission? To help us with that challenge, this issue of identity and who we are, our leaders decided in the past year or two, I guess it was 18 months, maybe two years ago, that we would start committing a few Sundays a year, hopefully every year, maybe every quarter, every four months, two, three, four times a year, we were going to commit a Sunday to host authors, pastors, leaders, thinkers, who have had a significant impact on our church's ideas, on our church's theology, on our church's, dare we say, doctrine, which simply means teaching, and we do have one of those. We're going to bring in folk who have had a significant impact on our leadership's lives and on your lives, and certainly they've had a significant impact on my life, on my faith, my vision of God, and accordingly, our mission as a church together. Well, a year and a half ago, when we sat down and began to compile that list, uh, this morning's guests were some of the first mentioned. And I say that, I said guests this morning, but I've been deeply impacted by Philip's writing. I've also been impacted by how much of Janet's life has woven into his books and impacted his theology. And Nancy and I aren't, um, aren't unlike that. I'm the think guy, the book guy, the writer, preacher guy, the Bible study guy, and she is the legs that just does and does and does and inspires me. I inspire her, she inspires me, and so Philip and Janet have had that kind of relationship. 20 years ago, I first met Philip Yancey as a young man that I was uh, mentoring. Some of you from Christ Church days might remember a young man named Eric Falk. Eric was a remarkable soul. I was probably 25 or 6, and he was late teens, early 20s, and I was mentoring him, discipling him, we called it. 
And in his stack of books, he had this book. And the title struck me because of where I privately was at that time. I was not publicly there, but I was privately there. And I could not find any door out of that closet that I was in spiritually. But in his stack of books, this young man that I was supposed to be impacting had a book called Disappointment with God. And it's a first edition, and I love that. And I borrowed it from him. You know, I was going to do some research on those poor people, Andreas, that get disappointed with God. And I never gave the book back because I borrowed it, and it impacted me deeply. And then finally, after years, I would see the book on the shelf, and I would think, I need to give that back to Eric. And he became a pastor and married a wonderful young lady. And before I could give him the book back, on his way back from a mission trip uh, with a group of kids, he and another lovely young lady from Christ Church days, you guys remember Becky and Tommy Scott, their daughter Emmy and Eric with a group of kids on the way back from the mission trip had made it home and were driving in ice and somewhere between Texarkana and Arkadelphia, Arkansas, car went off the road and Eric lost his life. And I, every time I look at this book, I think about the impact Yancey's had on me and just the irony of all of that. Um, I'll dispense with saying much more because I could take way too much time today talking about him. You're going to learn a lot about our church today. You'll taste, smell, just feel some things because uh, I've been preaching him for years. I've used every book and almost every page. Uh, I told in the first service, you know, when I quote Philip the first time, I say, you know, Philip Yancey said. The second time I quote him, I say, you know, someone said. And the third time I quote him, I say, you know, I was thinking the other day. <laughs> well, his books, The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, my favorite, and this might surprise him, my favorite of all his books is Soul Survivor, because he did in that book what I would do if I wrote a book and he wrote about the people who's impacted his life. I would not have known Frederick Beekner, Henri Nouwen, if it wouldn't have been for the bibliography of this fair man. And so we're going to have an opportunity to come back with him tonight, spend some Q&A. I did something I don't think that I've ever really done before or, or that we've ever done before, and that is we have a book table over here. And normally we try to get out of having book tables and tape tables and all of that. You know, this is Nashville and but this is not because somebody who sold 15 million books needs to sell another book. He and uh, Janet, I think, are going to do fine going back to Colorado if you guys don't buy books. But for the people who come in for this series, I want them to bring their books because these are the books that changed and shaped my life. And I would love for you to take some time after service and swing by there and pick up some. You will understand who we are better. You'll understand who I am better, and your life will be made better. Would you welcome... Philip and Janet Yancey to our church this morning. Thank you, Pastor. We've been back in uh, one of the side rooms comparing the lousy churches that we grew up in. And I, actually, I think you won, Stan. I... <laughs> 
It was a close one, but uh, in the first service, he said that I write whiny books. Well, that may be true. Um, Someone has said, <laughs> you know, when I come to a new place, uh, it, it's very unfair. In fact, I used to say something like this. I used to say when I would do a book signing, we have a very unequal relationship, you and I, because anything I've ever thought or experienced or smelled ends up in a book somewhere. So you, if you've read my books, you know everything about me, and I don't know anything about you. So when we meet together, uh, we only have a, a little bit of time because there may be a line. So I want you to think of the deepest, darkest secret of your life, Somebody you've never, something you've never told anybody, and you tell me that, and it will be a little more equal. And I had to stop doing that because people were confessing murders and you know things like that. <laughs> and it was a dilemma. But it, it is rather strange. I show up and, and look, and you guys look pretty good. Uh, you dress, you dress more than Coloradans do when they go to church, I'll say that. You dress up. And especially in church, it's easy to look around and think everybody's got it together. We like to kind of put on a front, you know. How are you today? Oh, just fine. Actually filed for divorce last week, but I'm not going to mention that in church. We've got to look good. And yet I look behind the faces, and I know that throughout this congregation there are some of you who are dealing with a parent with Alzheimer's disease, maybe fighting cancer, uh, maybe your kids were in the Winter Olympics, maybe things are going great, I don't know. There are stories behind the faces that only you know. And so I decided this morning, rather than focus in on, on one experience that you may be having, to talk about what I call seasons of the soul, using the seasons of the year as a springboard to talk about the different phases of the spiritual life that we go through. And I'm going to start with spring because one reason I accepted this trip to Nashville, I thought surely by March, at least the forsythia will be blooming. I turn on the news and I hear about ice and snow and, hey, come on, we got that in Colorado. I don't need that here. Uh, but spring is a time, most places, where those trees start coming to life and the bushes bloom. And I grew up in Atlanta, so I know the whole sequence of dogwoods and redbud and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and azaleas. And, and then I moved to Colorado. And in Colorado, gardens don't work. And the reason they don't work, I'll show you a picture of why they don't work. <laughs> We've got a lot of deer and a lot of elk and even a few moose out there, and they consider gardens buffets. So, and you can build the highest fence you want, and they just knock them down. I tried electric fences. I would spend every weekend repairing an electric fence that they would just walk right through. So I no longer look to plants for new life, for signs of spring. Now I look to animals. We, we happen to have a lot of animals in Colorado. So spring is a time when newborns are born to animals. And I, I love that period of time, just walking along and looking at squirrels and birds and, and all that stuff. One day, I was going down to get my mail, and I saw some woodpeckers. Now, we have kind of a love-hate relationship with woodpeckers. They're, they're very attractive, but they also make holes in my house, so some of them have sacrificed themselves. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> 
What I didn't know until I saw the scene was that woodpeckers aren't born knowing how to peck wood. That's not genetic. They have to learn. So this particular day, Daddy Woodpecker, you know, Woody, was teaching his young one how to peck wood. So you could kind of see them. He would stand on a tree like that or perch and kind of look up and say, okay, watch, watch. And a little hole would appear. And the, and the bird, the little tiny bird, would, would be on this little branch like this, and he'd watch Daddy, and then he'd go, Pr-clunk! and his beak would slip off to the side, and he'd kind of fall off the branch a little bit. And I, for half an hour, I was so entertained just watching a woodpecker learning to peck wood. That's springtime, new life. We had foxes in our backyard. I could stand in my driveway and actually see the fox den, so I would get binoculars and watch them. And then one day it occurred to me, come on, you write on a laptop uh, computer, you can can write at at the fox den. So I got a big cushion and propped it up against a tree, took my laptop out of the air, and for several days I would write, you know, do my normal work, and then the little three little foxes would come out, and I'd stop and be very quiet, and they'd play around. It was wonderful. And then the third day I decided to introduce myself. So they're playing, and I say, Hi! You can't imagine how high those little guys can jump. They leaped in the air and all three of them disappeared into the den. And it took forever and a little cat food to get them out to meet me. And we became friends. They started following me around. It was a great party trick. I could whistle the special whistle. And three little foxes would come running. And my friends were so impressed when this happened. But... Spring is a time of new life, and even the ugliest, most ornery animals, it seems like when they're young, they're cute, aren't they? And that's the way spring is. I remember the springtime of my soul. I told you about comparing notes with your pastor, and when I grew up in Atlanta, and it was a church I call a toxic church. I've been in recovery from it ever since, and I thought to be a Christian, you had to be angry, legalistic, and racist because every Christian I knew was all three of those things. And then later I found that some of those things were flat out wrong. That church had lied to me about some of that stuff. And so I said, the church probably has lied to me about everything else, and I threw it all out and went away from it. But I had absorbed a lot of the toxicity, and I was a rebel. And the message that I took away from that church is that God doesn't like rebels. In fact, God is a policeman just waiting to squash people like you. And if you ever want to connect with God, he'll break you. That's the message I heard. And I found exactly the opposite to be true. God didn't break me. He didn't smash me. He wooed me. He melted me. The things that brought me back to faith were not the Bible. We're not Billy Graham. I was full up to here with that stuff. They were the beauties of nature, like I've just experienced, the classical music that touched my soul like nothing else did in romantic love, each of which melted me. And in that period of time, as I was softening that hard, cynical shell, breaking apart, melting, I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton, who said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. And I was profoundly grateful for this world that God had given us. And eventually I wanted to know the artist. I wanted to thank. And actually when I did, I found out that 
that God has a soft spot for rebels. Go back and read the Bible. Look at the people he chooses and doesn't give up on. God has a soft spot for people like me. I became a journalist. I've written a lot about people's stories in the springtime of life, and it's one of the thrills that I have. I like finding people who experience that transformation, that melting. Once I was sitting in my basement office working, and this guy called me, and he said, uh, we, we would like you to speak at a conference. Okay, when is it? Well, it's only two months from now. Sorry, I, I book a lot further in advance than that. I have to reserve time for writing. I have my schedule can't do that. He said, well, I knew you'd be busy, but before you say no for sure, I just want to tell you, you're a journalist, aren't you? Yeah. So you're always looking for new experiences, right? Yes. Well, you should know that you'll be speaking to 100 prostitutes at this conference. Oh, <laughs> I'd never met a prostitute. He said, uh, yeah, actually, it's a, it's a conference of, of ministries that have work um, in sexual trafficking in 40 different countries, and they're bringing with them about 100 of their converts, women whose lives have been changed. And they want you to speak about grace. They have a very hard time experiencing and feeling God's grace, and they'd really like you to do that. 100 prostitutes. Well, boy, it does sound interesting. I should probably check with my wife. Um, <laughs> But I, I, I did accept that, and I went to Green Lake, Wisconsin, and I'll never forget. I told him, I'll be glad to talk to them about grace. I'd love to do that, but under one condition, I want to hear their stories. I don't want to just come in and talk to them. I want to hear their stories. And so for over two and a half hours one afternoon, I sat in a room, theater style. There were 100 prostitutes from, from all these countries and heard their stories one by one. And believe me, they're not like you see on TV. It's not Las Vegas. It's degradation and shame and abuse and violence. Incredible stories, difficult even to hear. And then I talked a little bit for a while. I talked about prostitutes in the Bible. And I, I always have to be careful when I tell this story because uh, once I was telling the story from Luke 7 in a church setting. And sometimes, if you've ever spoken in public, every once in a while you can tell by the look on the audience, I said something wrong, and I don't know what it was. So I was talking about this story from Luke 7, and, and, and people got this weird look on their face. And I didn't know what I had said. It kind of haunted me the whole time through. And then when it was over, I asked my wife, what did I say about Luke 7? She said, well, you talked about the prostitute who came while Jesus was having dinner, and she, she washed his hair with her feet. <laughs> well, we... You know, we've all seen documentaries about people who are born without arms and they learn to shave and comb their hair and stuff. Well, that's not what happened. The, the prostitute came. It's a beautiful scene because she took this very expensive jar of ointment, which in, in a desert setting before, you know, Botox and all that stuff, the, the best way to sell your body was to smell good. They didn't even have antiperspirant back then. So that was... A, when she broke that jar and poured it on Jesus, she was giving away her career. She was trusting Jesus with her future. Here it is. I, give, I don't know what's ahead of me, but I know what's behind me. She was washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And I told them that story, and then I, I told them, uh, you know, actually Jesus paid you a great compliment. He said that prostitutes and tax collectors will come first in the kingdom of God, ahead of the religious professionals. And that kind of felt good. I said, why do you think he chose you? Why didn't he talk about 
you know, shoemakers, grocery store clerks. Why prostitutes? And they sat there for a minute trying to figure it out. And finally, this woman from Bulgaria, not very good English, raised her hand and she said, you know, everybody, she have somebody to look down on, but us. We are at the low. Everybody look down on us. Nobody, their mama, say to them, honey, when you grow up, I want you to be best prostitute in town. Most of us, we don't know our family. They kick us out. But sometimes, she said, when you're at the low, you cry for help. I said, that's about the best definition of grace I've ever heard. Grace is a free gift of God. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't impress God. It's absolutely free. But to receive a gift, you got to have your hands open. And the Pharisees, the religious professionals in Jesus' day, had their hands closed tight in a fist, and the grace of God falls to the ground. But sometimes when you're at the low, you cry for help. I love seeing that in the springtime of faith. Spring is followed by summer. Summer's a great time. Gets a little hot for me down here. That's why I moved to 7,500 feet where I live. We don't have air conditioning in Evergreen, Colorado, but summer's nice. It's, uh, we talk about the days of summer. Even the, the sun seems to enjoy it more because it stays out longer, you know. Um, that's how it happens. And, and things bloom. My wife has a bucket list of, of things that she wants to do. And one of the things in the bucket list, she'd always heard about the lavender fields in Provence, France. So one year we managed to go to Provence, France, right when lavender was blooming. And you turn a corner, you see scenes like that. She said, stop the car, stop the car. And I stopped and she opened the door and did a swan dive into the lavender. <laughs> and I have a picture of her just, you know, floating on lavender. She wouldn't let me show it, but you can imagine. Uh, and and that's, that's what summer is. It's a time of, of joy and fruitfulness. And as Stan and I were talking, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not the Christian life that we heard growing up. We are, you know, smiling is a sin in some churches. Enjoying yourself? Jesus didn't call you to enjoy yourself. Well, go back. Go back and read. He said, I came to give you the fullness of life, life to all of its fullness. And the first miracle he ever did was make big jugs of wine at a wedding. Jesus was a party kind of guy. And his disciples would say, well, shouldn't we be fasting? I mean, we, with John the Baptist, he ate grasshoppers and, you know, no, <laughs> the banquet is here. You don't wear rags to a royal wedding. You, 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 you feast, you dress up, you enjoy. What happens in Countries that experience that springtime of faith as it spreads, it begins to affect everything. I was on a radio show one time and about a book I wrote called What Good Is God? And the person interviewing me said, you know, I didn't really have time to read your book. Can you just kind of tell me what good is God? <laughs> and I said, well, okay, yeah, I, I can. I'd start with several levels. First level individual stories of transformation. In my book, I talk about prostitutes and alcoholics and addicts and people whose prisoners, people whose lives are changed by God. 
God makes a difference in individual lives. And not only that, he affects whole communities. So that if, if you go through Hurricane Katrina, you better hope you're part of a church community that the government will come and then they'll leave. And the churches are still there this weekend, still building houses a couple years later. So it affects individuals, it affects communities, and then it affects whole societies. Jesus said the kingdom of God, it's not just for the insiders, it's not just for the inside club. The whole purpose of it is to permeate society like salt affecting a hunk of meat, like like yeast causing the whole loaf to rise. In fact, he said the smallest seed in the garden grows into a giant bush and the birds of the air come and nest in it. And if you look around the world, if you, if you study Transparency International, Prosperity Index, uh, Gender Equality Index, every one of those, usually with one exception, Singapore, Japan sometimes, the top 20 are all countries with a Christian background. And that's what happens to society. It's not necessarily that they're a Christian culture, but as Jesus said, the kingdom, the yeast has done its work. I saw that. I see that whenever I travel overseas, we take about four international trips a year because that's, that's what encourages my faith. If I only saw the U.S. church, I think it's like a corporation, you know, with hired professionals doing the work. When I go overseas, I tend to see the gospel flowering from the bottom up. I remember a trip I took to India. It happened to be the night of the Mumbai bombings. We were there in Mumbai that night. The event was canceled. But the day before that, we had gone to Hyderabad and we saw an unusual sight. When the early missionaries from Britain came to India, they studied this culture and they figured out the caste system and they said, oh, okay, let's start with the Brahmins. They're already educated, some of them speak English, so we can talk with them and we can build schools, we can build hospitals, and gradually, you know, the leaders, it'll kind of percolate down and affect people. Well, they didn't really understand the caste system because things don't percolate down in a caste system. So it took them about 150 years or so, but finally they decided, maybe we should start at the bottom and let it work up. (laughs) And more recently, they have started working among what used to be called untouchables. They're now called Dalits. And... We went to this place in Hyderabad, uh, Operation Mobilization, some of you may know that group, OM, had started schools, the Good Shepherd schools among the Dalits. You had to be a Dalit. And for 5,000 years, these kids have never had an education at all. They were, I mean, they're barely human. They're, They're uneducatable. They're stupid. They're only good for cleaning latrines, sweeping streets, shining shoes. But O.M. said, I don't think so. I think they were created in the image of God, just like I was. And I think they could be taught something. So they started these schools. And when we went there, there were a couple hundred kids lined up waiting for us. And and they were demonstrating their skills and singing the national anthem, reading the news and reading Bible verses. And then um, they invited us into their classroom. And some of you are teachers. You know about classrooms. (laughs) These kids are so thrilled to learn. I've never seen anything like it. We're in the classroom. They just, first grade, they learned their ABCs and their addition tables, you know, their math tables. And so they want to show off to the visitors from the United States. And they start, I I think they thought they got extra credit for volume because they're screaming at us, you know, capital A, small a, capital B, small b, capital C. So they go through all the, how many letters are there? 24, 26, all the letters. (laughs) Oh, the alphabet, I flunked first grade. And um, 
And then they start on the math, you know, one plus one, one plus two, and then subtraction, and then division, and, and multiplication. And the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, I've been to schools in the United States, and it's not quite like this. There you've got these kids. I dare you to teach me something. You are interrupting my life. I could be playing video games. I could be text messaging my girlfriend. You are ruining my life. And these kids, for 5,000 years, they've been taught you're nobody. And now they're told you are somebody created by God, and you can be somebody. A little bit later that same day, we went to where some of these kids live. It's a, a thing called the Pipe Village. And the pipes are, are these huge culverts made in a concrete factory, and uh, they're used for flood control and, you know, water, storm sewers, things like that. You can see, if you look to the left of the pipe we're standing in, it's a pretty big pipe, that it, uh, it's broken. So whenever they have a defective one, this concrete factory just throws it into a field. And in that field, of course, this is India, nothing goes unused. So people move into those pipes. And if you look behind through the pipe, you can see somebody has blocked in, bricked in the end of the pipe. And that's where people live. Some of them will get two of these pipes together and they'll have a little kitchen. And that's, they sleep on that kind of rounded surface there. And it's in the broiling sun all day long. It is incredibly hot. But hey, it's better. At least they've got concrete over their heads. So we're going from place to place and these kids running around in rags. And then one of the little kids in, in rags came up behind us, and she was maybe 15, 16, something like that. And she kept smiling as if she knew us. And we were being escorted by a doctor. And so we said, do, do we know this little girl? Yes, yes, she was in the, in the school today. Those kids lined up. In fact, she's in our very first graduating class. Oh, is that right? So what are you going to do when you graduate? I'm going to go to university, she says. Oh, really? Uh, to study what? I'm going to be a doctor. Really? Do you, do you know what kind of doctor? I'm going to be a cardiologist. <laughs> and the doctor who was with us said, and she probably will. She's the brightest kid we had. And I thought, imagine living in a pipe in rags, except for the school uniform she wears during the day. But suddenly some missionaries came along and said, you know what? God can set you free. God can raise you up. God loves you. God made you. I'm going to be a cardiologist. That's the summertime of faith. It affects everything around us. Summer is followed by fall, autumn. And in my part of the country, autumn is very beautiful. We have aspen trees, and, and they turn these gorgeous colors. That's not far from my home. People come, they fly into Colorado, they take their vacation. you got to time it right, because those trees are only in full foliage like that for a week, 10 days, usually in September, third week of September. And it's beautiful, and we take pictures, and we make calendars, but actually, as you know, those leaves, the colors are a sign of impending death. They're going to let go. They're, they're about to die. They've been nice and fresh and green. And just before they die, they turn those colors and, and then they drop. And it will look like those trees are dead for the next five months or so. Autumn is a time of confusion. It's a harvest time. It's a fruitful time. But it's also a time of, of darkness and preparation. And, and all of us at some point 
go through an autumn time of faith where we're still in it, but we're not sure. The doubts creep in. Sometimes there are doubts about the Bible, some tough stuff. Sometimes you meet people who seem to be better than most Christians, you know, and they don't believe anything. So it's kind of hard to figure out. And then more often it's an emotional struggle with God. You hear the news in your eighth month of pregnancy, there's something wrong with that fetus. It's time to put your parents in an Alzheimer's home. You get that news. You pray, you pray, you pray. You've never cared about anything more, and that prayer doesn't get answered. And you wonder, is it just bouncing off the walls? This is just evaporating in the air as soon as you say the words. Believe me, I understand doubt and struggle. That's why most of my books are are a question. The title is a question. I went to a Christian college, and I was not a good student. They had regular meetings on whether to kick me out of that school, and uh, fortunately, graciously, they let me stay. But in, when I was in chapel, particularly, I was the one person who most, who least wanted to be there. And as an act of penance, God has me now go to colleges and speak to people like me. So especially when I go to a Christian college, you, most of the people are quite polite. Some of them are very fresh-faced. Oh, please give me some spiritual words. And, and I look past them. I look toward those people on the back row reading magazines because that was me. And I'll say to them something like this. You, you can reject anything that these people are trying to tell you and walk away from it. That God has given you that freedom. But I challenge you to find... A single argument against God in the great classic atheists like David Hume, Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, or in the modern versions, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, I challenge you to find a single argument against God that they use that is not already included in the Bible. And I, for one, have respect for a God who not only gives us the freedom to reject God, to crucify his son, but gives us the arguments we can use in his sacred scripture. Psalms, Lamentations, Job, Ecclesiastes, Habakkuk. God understands doubt. God has a soft spot for rebels. One reason I came, <clears throat> one reason I came back to faith was because I had a brother who acted on his doubts. I, I had the doubts, but I didn't really act on them. He did. He, he grew up in the same church and family I did, of course, but he he responded by showing, I'll, go, I'll show those people. I'll be the opposite of what they said. And so he was. He was my older brother. He was smarter, stronger, everything than I was. And, you know, I accepted my role in life to bow down to him. And he was incredibly musically talented. He was one of these people you only see every once in a while who was Mozartian in his gifts. He could pick up any musical instrument and within a couple of hours, master it. I, I, I don't know how that happens. How do you get your muscles to do, to play a saxophone or a, you know, a clarinet? I, I don't know. I could never do that. But he would bring home a different instrument every day. And he could, he could hear a concerto in, in a restaurant on the radio while he's eating dinner and, and several weeks later sit down and play it. I mean, it was, you bow down before such gifts. He went to Wheaton College, joined the conservatory, and this was the 1960s, and I'm going to be free. I've been prisoned all my life in this church and this family. I'm going to be free. They can't make me graduate from this school. 
So his last semester, he dropped out. Yeah, he was right. He, I'm going to be free. So he moved to Atlanta, became a hippie. He uh, would take LSD every Sunday. He's going to expand his mind. And then he moved to California, of course, like all hippies eventually. <laughs> and his whole life from then on was, was exploring the limits of freedom, the sex and and drugs and alcohol and gambling and everything. And you know what my brother ended up doing? You've never seen him playing with the Nashville Symphony because he became a piano tuner. He fried his brain on LSD. And so he still plays the piano until he had a stroke recently, but one note at a time. <laughs> Very sad. Watching my brother, I learned an important lesson that apparent freedom can lead to a form of slavery. That's what addiction's all about. People, people don't get addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and pornography because, because they think uh, it's going to control my life. They think it's going to give me pleasure. But the funny thing is when you, when you give yourself to it, it takes control. It takes over. And apparent freedom can lead to a form of slavery. But I learned also that apparent slavery can lead to a form of freedom. Paul described himself as a slave. Hey, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm, ha I'm happily chained to Jesus Christ. And actually, as I have been a journalist and have interviewed a lot of people, I've, I've noticed some things. I look back on the people I've, I've interviewed, and they tend to fall into two categories. One category I call stars. And those are the people we put on the covers of our magazines, the basketball players. You know, basketball players probably make more money than all the teachers in Nashville put together because they're good at putting a round ball through a round hoop. You know, there's, that's a little strange in our society. Somebody figured out that... Um, Kevin Garnett, basketball player, made more money last year than the entire United States Senate put together. Now, he probably deserved more money than last year's Senate. <laughs> but what does it say about a democracy that pays a guy for putting a round ball through a round hoop more money than all the people who write its laws for our democracy? Is that a little strange? They put me in, a, in this hotel in Franklin, and they're having a Honey Boo Boo Convention. <laughs> and there are all these, you know, I, I asked in the elevator, there's these three-year-olds going around in bikinis and five-year-olds in formals trying to walk in high heels. And I asked this woman on the elevator, what is the age range of this thing? She said, birth to 25. What, what are they doing? They want to be stars. Hey, this is Nashville. Hey, entertainment tonight. Hey, that's, that's, you got to be a star. I got to tell you, as a, as a journalist, I've interviewed these people, and I used to think, man, wouldn't it be great to be Kevin Garnett? Wouldn't it be great to be Lady Gaga? <laughs> and I've concluded, no. No. Pretty miserable, actually. I, I, I've nosy journalists. I've gone in their medicine cabinets, pretending like I have to go to the bathroom. I look at... <laughs> I look at how many pills it takes them to get through one day, and I found that some of the most famous people are famous because there's a little voice inside them telling them, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good. And they have to somehow overcome that voice by getting people to say, you're good, you're good, you're good. That's why they're famous. That's why they're stars. 
But actually, what I have found is that the people who most impress me as living life to the fullest, life to the abundant, are those who apparently are giving away their lives. In fact, Jesus said, of all the things he said, this one he repeated more often, six times in the Gospels. He said, you don't find your life by acquiring more and more. You find your life by giving it away in service to others. Here, let me show you how to do it. We got one life, one night left in this life, so I'll show you how to do it. Take off your shoes. I want to wash your feet. This is how you gain your life. When you ask these people who went on this prison trip with Melissa last week, what was better, eating a, a great restaurant in Florida or ministering to those prisons? Oh, it's no contest. It's no contest. The people I've interviewed and gotten to know who impressed me most are the servants. Dr. Paul Brand has infected, affected me more than anybody in the book Soul Survivor. I write about him. I wrote three books with him. We spent 10 years together. I, I know him inside and out. He's dead now. I don't know anyone who's who's wiser, who's smarter. Any question that I had ever thought of, he had, he had thought of first, had read in Hebrew and Greek and French and German. I mean, he's one of those kind of guys. And this man who graduated first in his class from the best medical school in London spent his life among the lowest people on the entire planet, and that is those who are Dalits, untouchables in India, who had leprosy. That's as low as it gets. There's nobody lower. When you have leprosy, even in that community, you're kicked out of your family. And of 12 million people with leprosy in the world, there was one orthopedic surgeon who said, I think I can help them. I can remake their hands. I can remake their feet. Autumn is a time of thanksgiving, but it's a different kind of thanksgiving. I mentioned G.K. Chesterton earlier, and he had a quote about Thanksgiving. He said, I've always regretted that we in Great Britain don't celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a great American holiday. And I think we should institute that holiday, and we should have it the same day the Americans do, so that the same day they celebrate the Puritans coming to America, we can celebrate the Puritans leaving England. <laughs> but the Bible's view of Thanksgiving is different. The Bible's view of Thanksgiving reframes reality. When I was writing a book on prayer, I would go around and listen to people's prayers. And a lot of our prayers are things that we wish were different. So that I, I would hear prayers like, maybe not quite this bold, but prayers like this. Oh, Lord, if I, could, if I could just get married, all my problems would be solved. If I could just meet Mr. Right. And then I would hear other prayers. Lord, if I could just get rid of my husband, all my problems would be and, and, and then I'd hear prayers, oh, God, if I could just have a baby, I've wanted a baby so long. And then I, parents of teenagers particularly, oh, God, if I could just get these kids out of my house. <laughs> and, and they're all things, if we could just change this, change that, then I'll be thankful, then everything's okay. And, and the Bible's view of Thanksgiving is quite different. Paul, in fact, says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. And if you look back on his life, he went through a lot of states. He went through prisons and beatings and sickness and shipwreck and snake bite and all of those things. And yet at the end, he said, God, we, God used all of those things for my good. 
I have found as I've interviewed people, as I've gotten to know those, that that God can work in the most unlikely people. <laughs> I'm at the front of the line. I was on a trip to Nepal one time, and I went to one of these leprosariums. It's a great story, chapter in Christian history, that Christians have done the most to help those with leprosy. They were the only ones who would work with them. Everybody else was afraid. They didn't want to touch them. But everywhere you go in, in areas that have leprosy, there are mission hospitals. And I went to one in Nepal. It was um, called Green Pastures Hospital. The doctor was giving us a tour. And as we went into the, to the hospital wing, there was a courtyard there, large grass courtyard. And I looked across the courtyard, and there was a woman. I got to say, this was the ugliest human being I've ever seen in my life. She, her feet were all bandaged up. She had no toes left. Her, her fingers had worn away, just stubs where it used to be fingers. Her eyes were calloused, covered with, with calluses. She'd been blind for many years, and her nose had shrunken away so that when you looked at her, you looked right into her skull. Not, not a pretty sight. So I saw her, just kind of looked, saw her in the distance, and then we, we had a tour of the hospital. We were gone for about a half an hour. And while we were having the tour, she had heard people walking along the sidewalk. She could still hear. While we were on the tour, she had made her way across the courtyard to the sidewalk. She couldn't walk, so she would plant her elbows and then drag her body, almost like a, a caterpillar or something, across that large courtyard. And when I saw her, I thought, oh, she's probably a... A beggar, what else can you do with leprosy in Nepal? And uh, so I reached in my pocket to see if I had some Nepali coins left that I could give her. My wife was a social worker in Chicago among the poor, among the homeless. She worked among those who were at the low. And she had a very different and more holy reaction. She went over to this woman and put her arm around her, and that's when I took this photo. The woman started singing. We didn't know Nepali, of course, but we didn't have to. We knew the tone, the tune. She started singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The doctor who was with me said, oh, I want to introduce you to Dunmaya. She's no beggar. She's the closest thing to a saint that I know. Every time the chapel doors open, Dunmaya is there. In fact, do you have any prayer needs? Dunmai is a prayer warrior. Her prayers get answered. And when I went away from that place, I realized that by every standard of the stars, this woman's a miserable failure. She's ugly. She's penniless. She has nothing on her resume. But God looked on this woman and said, I could make a very comfortable home inside Don Maya. I hope you believe that about yourself. We live in a world that's always pushing us to, to be a star, to have the spotlight shine on us, to make the news, to be in the media. You in Nashville understand that, don't you? The way to contentment, the way to thanksgiving in the biblical sense is not to get the world to applaud. The way to contentment is to get God to applaud. 
I love that scene from the Old Testament where King David came in and they were bringing the ark to Jerusalem. It was a great day. He started dancing around. He was dancing so hard that his clothes fell off. He's down to his underwear. And his wife scolded him. I mean, imagine the king. Imagine, you know, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. No, don't imagine. <clears throat> the king of Israel and his wife said, Oh, how impressive. The king of Israel dancing in his underwear for the slave girls of Israel. And he said, I wasn't dancing for the slave girls of Israel. I wasn't dancing for you. I was dancing for God. And that's all David cared about. And that's why, despite the many mistakes David made doing things that nobody in this room has done, I hope, at the end of his life, despite all those mistakes, God said, that's my kind of guy. That's a man after my heart. He lived for me. He lived for me. Not perfect by any means, but he danced for me. There's one last season, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Some of you are in winter. I know. I spend a lot of my time in winter. The first book that I wrote was a book called Where is God When It Hurts? And because of that, I'm asked to speak. When, it seems like every time a tragedy happens. We were in Mumbai that night. I had to speak then. We were called to Virginia Tech. I just published this book, The Question That Never Goes Away, in 2012. The Japan, the tsunami, Sarajevo, the war crimes, and then hardest of all, Newtown, Connecticut, the week after the shootings at Sandy Hook School. Winter is a time that looks like death. It's a time of grief, and the trees lose their leaves. You look at those trees, and you don't know if they're dead or alive. You don't know if when springtime rolls around, will those leaves come out again or not, or are they dead for good? But botanists will tell you that actually the trees do more growth during wintertime than any other time. Because while on the surface it looks like they're dead, underneath there's a lot happening. The roots are spreading. That's what makes the trees able to produce leaves next springtime. And strangely enough, that happens in our lives as well. You do surveys. When did you grow most spiritually? It's not the happy times, people say. Almost always, it's the difficult times, the challenging times, the time when your faith is put to the test. That's when you can grow most spiritually. My favorite passage in the Bible, every once in a while, somebody will say, would you please write your, my, your favorite verse in my Bible? I say, I don't do verses, you know. I'm a writer. What would it be like? What is your favorite sentence in this book? You know, I'd, but I will do a chapter. Romans 8 is, is a sweeping chapter, the global winter, the groaning planet. And I'll summarize it in the words of Dallas Willard, who died just not that long ago. He said, paraphrasing Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. Not nothing bad can happen. Bad things happen to all of us. Christians don't get a free pass, not by any means. But nothing irredeemable, we serve a God who is a recycler. <laughs> who can take those wintry times and make out of them spring. And whenever I've gone to these places of grief, I've seen that process at work. When I went to Newtown, Connecticut, it was winter, just a week or so after the shootings there. 
It was very sad, black shrouds over the houses who had lost a child. Uh, these shrines have popped up all over town, covered with snow, now mushy. The flowers are wilted, frozen. Very sad, sad place. And when I was preparing to go, I, I was terrified. I got the call. It was right at Christmas. We were there December 28th, changed our plans, went over there. And when I was preparing, I, I thought, what can I say to these people? What, what can I possibly say? I thought this would be a faith-shattering experience for me. Actually, the opposite turned out to be true. I was writing an article shortly before I got the call that involved some of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And I had been reading their, their words about the world. And they said, they said uh, it's a universe of blind, pitiless indifference. We are a random accident never to be repeated. And after being immersed in, in their view of the world, I realized that there's one question that's even harder than where is God when it hurts? And that is where is no God when it hurts? Because I could stand in front of the parents like little birds with their mouths open. Please give me, give me something in this time of grief. I could stand and, and offer true words of comfort and say, Jesus is on the side of the sufferer. Let me show you how he handled people. A widow who lost her only son, even a Roman soldier whose servant fell, fell ill. Jesus understands pain. God is on the side of the sufferer. God went through it too. And before he left, Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. A place with no tears, with no death, with no guns, with no violence. And so they didn't really care about where is God when it hurts. They cared about, will I ever see my daughter, my son again? And I said, yes, they're in a safe place in the loving arms of God right now. That is a word of comfort and hope that we can offer that you don't get from Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris. I got to tell you, heaven is pretty hard for me to imagine. I just can't imagine that. And it's hard to believe in, I've got to say, most of the time. But when I'm called to speak in a, to a place like that, I realize how important it is. We were in Japan, as I mentioned, it was the one-year anniversary of the tsunami, and we went to this school where 127 children died. They died trying to get away from the wall of water. You could still see how, how high it went. So on the second floor of the school, you could see where the mud line hit. And someone had brought along a video of the tsunami hitting that school. We stood on the steps of the school. They had an iPad and played the video. We saw this 50-foot wall of water coming right at us. And then it hit the school, and the, and the children mostly died on the stairway, scrambling to try to get to the second floor. And just little bodies tossed around and killed. This was a year later. And in that school, there was a gymnasium. The gymnasium had been turned into a, a bunch of boxes, catalogs of things that they had found, school books, fountain pens, teddy bears, papers, letters. And every day, a year later, Japanese mothers were coming in, going through these boxes one by one, looking for some little fragment of memory of their child. That's what we humans do with people we love. We keep them alive in our memory. So that if you go to Newtown, Connecticut today, many of those rooms are exactly like they were before the shootings. The parents are keep. You don't say, 
oh, well, my kid's gone. Might as well erase the videotapes, remove it. No, 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 we keep them alive. And we serve a God who's far more powerful than us. Not only can keep us alive and memory can remake us. Because that's what, pe- that's what we do with people we love. We don't just let them go. We keep them alive. And so I imagine a God who finds a way to remake us alive because God loves far more than any human being can love. And Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And the grief that you feel, the pain that you go through, the winter times that you go through, these are hard, hard, hard times. I know I went through them too, but they're temporary. I know that because I died on Friday and I came back on Sunday. And the worst day in all of human history when God's own son was murdered is a day we now recall not as Black Friday, Sad Friday, Tragic Friday, but Good Friday. Good Friday. Because for those who love God, nothing is irredeemable. Nothing irredeemable can happen to you. I don't know what season you are in right now. I know that there are stories of springtime and new life in this church, and I hope there will always be. And I hope you put them up here and let them remind the rest of us old, tired folks of what it's like when you awaken to new life in Christ. There are some of you who are in the summer who are going around to the prisons, to different places, to the homeless, to put into motion what Jesus said. You find your life by giving it away. And I hope you keep doing that. There are some of you who are in autumn who are just not sure about the whole deal. Just not sure. God has a special place for you, as I found out. And then there are some of you who are in winter times. And I don't know what those winter times are. But I do know that we are called to spread abroad, a phrase I love from 2 Corinthians 4, spread abroad the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. Not the God of all judgment, as our society often thinks, the God of all comfort. May you take that word of comfort and hope, that good news, to Nashville. The winter doesn't last forever. The snow will begin to melt. The flowers will come back, the tulips will bloom, the daffodils, the hyacinth throughout this land. Whatever season you're in, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, God can work and wants to work within you to build new life, life to the fullness. Amen. remain standing. You see a little more today who we are. You understand a little more today about Grace Point just from hearing Philip talk. And as I sat there, I thought to myself over and over again, I remember when I read that the first time. 
I remember when I read his epistle and it made sense to me or struck me the first time. There are not many Philip Yanceys in my life. There are not many Philip Yanceys in the world. You have them in yours. We all have these special people. But today you've learned a little bit more about who Grace Point is.